apologies for everything. Who is it? Who is it? Welcome back to For All Mankind, the official podcast. I'm Chris Marshall, a.k.a. Commander Danielle Poole on the Apple TV Plus series. Each week, I sit down with the cast, crew, and show creators to discuss what just happened in the latest episode. This podcast will be jam-packed with spoilers. So if you haven't seen episode three of season three yet, press pause, go watch, and come back. There is a lot to talk about. Today, I'm joined by executive producer Meryl Davis and season one and two director Mira Menon. But first, a quick recap. We start the episode with years of romantic tension told through an annual elevator ride shared by Margot and Sergey. Then it's down to business as the race to Mars heats up. Everyone is moving up their launch dates to compete with Helios, and it's a scramble to get on the winning team. Karen tries to poach Aleda, Bill leaves for Helios, Kelly moves to Team NASA, and Danny Stevens joins Helios as Ed's second-in-command, despite the good advice from my character Danielle. But the trouble really hits when Margot was blackmailed to share NASA's nuclear engine design. The Soviets threatened to kill Sergei, and she's left with no other option but to hand over the goods. Finally, we jump forward two years. NASA, Helios, and the Soviets each launch a ship to Mars, and the race is on. The episode ends with a call to Margot from the president, who is none other than former astronaut Ellen Wilson. Madam President. I know this moment is something we've both been working towards for a long time. Congratulations. You should be very proud. Now let's kick their asses. I am joined today by two incredibly intelligent and powerful and truly some of the the coolest women I've ever worked with. Um, First up is Meryl Davis, who's executive producer on For All Mankind. Hi, Meryl. Hi, Chris. Hi, Mira. (laughs) And I'm also joined with Mira Menon, who is a four-time director of For All Mankind. Hi, Mira. Hi, Chris. Okay, so before we get going, Mira, tell us about what you did for the show, because you weren't with us in season three, but you were with us in seasons one and two, and your work with us was instrumental. So talk to the audience just a bit about your role in For All Mankind as a director. Yeah, I was deeply fortunate enough to be able to direct two episodes in season one and two episodes in season two. I did Hi, Bob, with you, Chris, (laughs) and um, that Ron wrote. And it was like, just that was like, to me, just like it shaped the whole experience and and really shapes my experience as a viewer of the show was having Mm. directed that episode and the episode right after. Um, But certainly that episode as in terms of the foundation of, you know, you and Michael and Joel's relationship as like a, to me, a foundation as a viewer of the show. Now I just like watch Mm -hmm. it through the lens of the bedrock of that relationship between you three. So I just feel really fortunate to have like seen it form. Thank you. Meryl, what do you even do here? What, Meryl, what are you doing I don't, here? I don't even know what I do, do here. Do you even and actually, go here? <laughs> I was going to, do I go to this school? 
Um, actually, it's funny about Hi Bob because I was thinking Hi Bob kind of dies this episode a, a slow, sad death briefly. But anyway, Chris, I ask myself that question every day. What am I doing here? <laughs> what am I doing what here? What do I do on this show? Um, <laughs> I do a lot of little things. I um, do casting, weigh in with notes, deal a lot with Matt and Ben, those showrunners, those mm-hmm. pesky, pesky showrunners. Exactly. Um, interact with Studio Network. So I do a lot of behind the scenes stuff. Uh, you don't see me too much on set anymore, but you know my presence is there. Mm-hmm. I'm like the Jedi. I'm all around. You absolutely are. So part of the reason why I was so excited to have you two on is because I do feel like on its face, a show about space is going to be a show about men, right? Most shows about space are shows about men. Our show is not like that. There's so much complex, beautifully developed female characters in this story. And for that to also coincide with a sci-fi story is rare in television and rare in movies. Mira, talk to me about the experience of when you were first approached to direct in season one. What were your thoughts about working on a sci-fi series? And what do you, as a woman, bring into a traditionally male-dominated genre? You know, it's funny. Whenever I think about this question the latter part of your question or I've ever posed it, it's challenging, right? Because I don't like walk around on set thinking like, wow, I'm a woman and I'm doing this. You know, like I don't experience... You know what the scene needs? Womanness. <laughs> yeah. Drizzle a little Thank woman God. on it. Thank <laughs> God I'm here. <laughs> you know, like I don't, I don't, you know, and you guys must feel the same way. You don't approach things yeah. like with that awareness of like what Mm -hmm. you're bringing to the table. But certainly when I've had like the fortune of being a part of season one, you know, it it wasn't so apparent as viewers and everyone knows that the show was so much about that perspective. Like it didn't, Mm -hmm. it didn't necessarily start with that focus on all its female characters, but then it became, Mm -hmm. it blossomed so much, I think into an understanding and a deepening of its storytelling through its female characters. And certainly by the time we got to high Bob and the episode right after even more so those perspectives really started to come to the foreground of, of the show. And I certainly, and also the fact that the episode that I worked on in season one, the rupture was written mm-hmm. by Nicole Beatty. And I think that mm-hmm. like working with a female writer as well, like I think mm-hmm. really connected me into that experience. And I certainly feel like this show has a really deep understanding of the female perspective through its female characters. And I feel very lucky that I got to be a small part of it. Meryl, when you are pairing directors with writers, do you factor that in? Do you say to yourself, oh, okay, let's have Mira direct the season's episodes that deal with the death of a child or in High Bob, the experience of a woman being alone marooned with these men and finding her way to tell her part of the story. Do you consciously think about that? Or is it truly just kind of happenstance? We like these directors. They've got availability. Bada bing, bada boom. Yeah, it kind of depends, honestly. It's kind of a mixture. It's kind of a potion that you put together. It's sometimes director schedules. So definitely we're always kind of trying to pair people. But as Mira said, we don't go in going, hmm, this has a lot of female stuff in it. We need a female. I mean, I do think, I do think, yes, women bring a certain perspective, but I think there's also this stereotype out there that, oh, women must do romance better and men must do Mm. action better. And I think Mm -hmm. we're always trying to mix up that narrative and just say, Mm -hmm. you know what? 
women can do kick-ass adventure scenes. And you know what? Men actually can bring a different perspective to sex scene. So I think we're always trying to shake up that narrative a little bit. But certainly with a show like this that has a very dominant female storyline, we've tried to infuse as much femaleness as possible in terms of in front of the camera, behind Mm. the camera, because I think that mixed perspective on stories is hugely important. And um, it's funny, when I was rewatching this episode, I kept thinking, God, it's really interesting how Danielle, she's kind of the moral compass of this show in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. She's Mm -hmm. just, you know, Ed goes off the rails many times. And, um, but Danielle, you always feel like, God, she's doing things from the heart. She's doing things for the right reason. She's, in so many ways, as I said, our moral compass that mm-hmm. we go, God, she did the right thing. Yeah. Again, it's like, it's silly to like talk about absolutions like, oh, women always do this and men always do this. But I do think it's so interesting that here we have a control, right? At one point, Danielle is not chosen as the mission commander for NASA's trip to Mars. And her response to Molly when she says, you know, if you want time to think about it, about being on Ed's backup crew, and before Molly can even get the words out, Danielle says, I don't need to think about it. Whatever Ed needs, whatever NASA needs, I'm there for him. Then we've got that exact same scenario with Ed, who is revoked from being the mission commander. And his response is to take his ball and bat and go home. And not only (laughs) not be on her backup crew, but completely leave this agency that he's been with for decades. What do we think about that? I mean, you know, the approach of how this woman receives rejection versus how this man receives rejection. But I kind of love that because I think it's sadly how things have been in history for women. We've Mm -hmm. had to say, you know what, I'm going to play ball just to be in the game. Do you know what I mean? And Ed is like, I don't have to do that. I can take my bat and go home. Mm -hmm. And he still lands on his feet. And um, I think that's just emblematic of, unfortunately, how women have been treated over the years, the fact that we have to suck it up. And it turns out well for Danielle, obviously, in this episode. But once again, I think it just is is so typical of how women have been treated and the fact that we're like, okay, we swallow our pride and say, that's fine, I'll be back up. And men don't have to do that and can still succeed. And I think that's one of the things we were trying to show in this episode. Mira, as a woman of color, I'm curious about your thoughts on what Meryl just said a second ago. How do we tell that story in For All Mankind with Danielle? I mean, we're seeing it with her in the scenes with uh, Molly, where she essentially says, you're overqualified. And then we're seeing it in the scene with her with Ed, where he says to Danielle, basically, if this were a level playing field, you and I both know that I would be the one who was chosen. What's that experience like to be a woman of color and acknowledging that, yes, I may be a cog in this machine, I may fit the token, but I also want to remain at this table? I mean, I think the show portrays the difficulty of being in that position and having Mm -hmm. to kind of proceed with grace, uh, despite the indignity of not being taken as seriously as the man, the Mm -hmm. way Danielle like constantly does. Actually, one of the scenes that stuck out to me in these first few episodes of season three is the first scene Danielle and Ed have together in the astronaut meeting room, like where you guys are first seeing each other after like thinking that Ed is the one that got that position mm-hmm. and the grace with which Danny approaches him. And at first, like it, not, not necessarily taking it kind of lying down, 
reminding him that she's going to be right there if anything mm-hmm. goes wrong and he messes mm-hmm. up. She's going to be right there to take his spot. But the way you walk around that table, the slow approach to him and the the kind of small kind of threat that you're presenting to him. But then the way you guys like hug each other at the end, you kind of give him that small little, you know, kind of jab um, mm-hmm. in the stomach, you know, like just like the way you guys like come together in the end, the way you have to ultimately play ball is so mm-hmm. perfectly enacted in the way you block that scene and the way you both performed, the way you particularly performed it, Chris, I just like mm-hmm. loved that scene so much because I feel like that says it all. That's the way you have to conduct yourself. You have to show them and tell them that you're not going to necessarily take every one of those indignities lying down, but at the end mm-hmm. of the day, you're there to p- play ball and um, and you're a good sport about it. Meryl, what do you think about this dynamic between Ed and Danielle coming into the start of this series. We see Danielle introduced as this girl who is the youngest in the ASCAM program and is, you know, so shy she can hardly get her name above a whisper as she walks into this classroom. Till now we see her and she is standing there toe to toe with the Ed Baldwin. Can you speak more about the longer trajectory of Danielle Poole? First of all, I love on-screen male-female relationships that are platonic. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? I find those so interesting because obviously we know if there's a romantic thing there that can lead somewhere. But I love female-male friendships on screen Mm -hmm. because I don't think we see enough of them. And I love the fact, I mean, I think what we've tried to do with Danielle and Ed is we've continued to show Ed's kind of darker underbelly, so -hmm. to speak, that we, Mm -hmm. we haven't showed Ed completely evolve as a human, because even in the last season, I love the scene between Ed and Danielle, where Danielle goes in and pretty much demands a command slot. Mm-hmm. And Ed's response is, haven't we done enough, Danielle? Like, haven't we done enough in terms of di- <laughs> di- diversity <laughs> in the program? I head against the wall. <laughs> I, I know, but that's the point. And I love that we showed that. And same as that Deke moment when Ellen came out to Deke, like, we have to sh- continue to show those moments because it's reality. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? This is not a mm-hmm. perfect society. It continues to be a society that needs, needs to evolve, even in a society that we're showing that's an alternate history, that women were so much more involved. Diversity was much more a part of this program earlier than we are now, even. Mm-hmm. And I think we've continued to show that. I mean, Ed, it's such a gut punch in that scene at the outpost when he said, come on, Danielle, you and I both know, like, mm-hmm. this is an even playing field. And you just want to slap him. But <laughs> it's it's important to show that because, once again, it's a real feeling that some people have, unfortunately. And it's important mm-hmm. that that relationship is so real that it's not surfacy and it's hard and it's painful. But I love the fact that Danielle and Ed don't pull punches with each other. They haven't Mm. then, like they were in this situation where Danielle pretty much, you know, threw herself under the bus for Gordo back, you know, in the the High Bob episode. And and they have a very real raw relationship and we might not like it and we might Mm want to punch it and we might, you know, want to pull our hair out. But it's once again important to show the real beliefs for some people as we move through the series. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about episode 303. We've just got this delicious montage of seeing Sergey and Margot over the years and the growing sexual tension and the adoration and all of this kind of stuff going on at once. Meryl, talk to me more about 
the experience of Margot in a, I mean, I think it's frank to say, a relatively sexless life. She's married to her work. <laughs> she literally sleeps in her office. To now have this little germination of something that feels illicit, exciting, fun. Yeah, I mean, we had so many discussions about this opening montage. I kind of love the elevator doors used as kind of the mm-hmm. passage of time with all the years. And God, we had so many discussions about this episode and Marco and Sergey and and Remains of the Day, the movie, was a huge touch point for us for this mm-hmm. moment. It's where these two very kind of repressed people can't really touch each other. And we we focused, you'll notice in the episode, a lot on their hands and not being able to touch. And then obviously, finally, mm-hmm. towards the end, the 1991, it's like they finally intertwine hands. And we also had a lot of discussions with Alonzo, our costume designer, about the clothes. And you'll notice each passing kind of montage, Margot, who's very repressed and kind of uptight, certainly in her clothing and, and attitude, starts to get more and more, not undressed, but like in the first one, she has a turtleneck on or high neck. And the second one, it's a little lower down. Third one's a little lower down. And fourth one is kind of a V-neck almost. So Mm -hmm, we tried mm -hmm. to kind of show visually also her kind of relaxing. I mean, Sergei doesn't have as many visual changes of his costume because he, on the outside anyway, is much more relaxed than Margot. We don't realize in this montage that he's obviously hiding some fear with the KGB kind of right around Mm. the corner. But, you know, we also had a lot of discussions about should the two of them have sex. And actually, in mm. earlier iterations of the script, I think we actually did talk about them having kind of consummating the relationship. But then we quickly realized that was probably a bridge too far for Sergey. that as a person, he just wouldn't be able to go through with it. And, and it's such an awkward moment when she's like, I want you to kiss me. And then they finally start getting into it. <laughs> and then he's like, <laughs> stops to talk about the nuclear, <laughs> you know, nuclear engine. And you're like, Oh, crap. But we also really thought that moment was not only for the KGB and the fact that he did need that information, but also that Sergei is a good guy and mm-hmm. he really does like Margot, but but has the kind of presence to say, I just can't, I can't take advantage of you this way and go all the way. You know, Rand and Piotr do an amazing job. I mean, it's such a repressed relationship. You just you just want them to go for it. I mean, when mm-hmm. they kiss, you're like, finally. You know, it's it's a really tortured relationship. Mira, do you think that Margot becomes sort of a, you know, compromise, right? But <laughs> it is, is part of that because of the responsibility and the expectation that we put on women in high powers of position. Because Margot is sort of forced to be sexless in many ways and so joined to her work that now she's left vulnerable by having some little moment of someone who shows interest in her. Yeah, it was such a payoff for me to see this storyline because the second episode I did in season two, Best Laid Plans had this like scene between Margot and Sergey in a bar where they they realized they couldn't talk about like figuring out how to actually figure out the design for this Apollo Soyuz connection in the office because there was always someone listening from the Soviet mm-hmm. side. So they like have this clandestine meeting at this like bar called 1159, mm-hmm. this like doomsday themed mm-hmm. bar. And I remember the scene, there wasn't like any overt flirtation in the scene, but there was this scene where Margot talks about her 
upbringing and like her childhood Mm. experiences with like doomsday scenarios and having these like alarm exercises in school where they'd like hide under the desks. There was like some Mm -hmm. kind of funny anecdote she relayed to Sergei about her childhood and like being afraid of the nuclear bomb as a child. And it was like one of those rare glimpses into Margot's life outside of work that she was sharing Mm. with another human being. And it felt romantic just because she was relaying something personal to him. And that's like as far as you ever see Margot go in that kind of context. And I just remember having conversations on set about like how flirtatious this conversation needed to be. And both of them not even being sure because we didn't know where the storyline was going. And then I watched Mm -hmm. the opening of this episode and I was like, well, that's where it was going. What a payoff. Yeah. (laughs) What a payoff. Meryl, you don't know back then that there will be something going into season three, do you? Or is it, do you sow the seed thinking this will pay off sometime? I just don't know when. Or are you thinking, no, 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 she's going to become an asset and we need to start sowing a seed early on? Yeah, no, we kind of had always since the beginning or fairly early on, and certainly in season two, known that this was where Marco would go. Okay. And interestingly, I'm pretty sure Ren is one of those actors who doesn't like to know where she's going. So that might also mm-hmm. be a reason which um, she didn't know more because she doesn't like to play ahead or be influenced. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we've always thought Margo would go this way. And the last scene of this episode is so tragic that look on her face where you realize Mm -hmm. okay she's now officially in bed with the Russians is so heartbreaking because you just know that she unintentionally has sold her soul to the devil and and it's all in the certainly her dealings with with Sergei in the beginning were heartfelt and of a friendly romantic nature but also I think she truly was doing this for the betterment of the space program internationally. Like, that's Mm -hmm. what Margot does. It's, you know, obviously there was a line that she drew in terms of nuclear information, but she's always been like, the more everyone else advances, the more we'll all advance. And I love that Mm -hmm. about Margot. She's so driven, but she also has this kind of universal goal in mind. And I love that about her, and it makes this story even more tragic. I want to talk a bit about our first female president. Hi, guys. we got a female president in our world. (laughs) Mira, how would that affect our real timeline if that had actually happened? I mean, I think it's this whole thing about representation, right? Which is just, you know, the name of the game as far as I'm concerned. If you can see it, you can be it. Like, I think there Mm -hmm. would be so many more women running for office. And then it's just like a matter of numbers if there are more women putting themselves out there for what I think is increasingly the most impossible job in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's more of a chance that there would be more women in those positions of leadership. Yeah. Mira, as you're watching these women each find different ways to pursue their goals, I mean, I'm thinking about Danielle, who her husband is, you know, she's finally got love in her life and her stepson needs her with help with the schoolwork. But of course, once the call comes from Margot that she's got the job, she turns back at them and is like, good luck with battle bots. I got to get the hell out of here. So, you know, is Mira, is Danielle a selfish prick? Is Molly, is Ellen, are these folks, are they selfish pricks? Like Molly said. No, <laughs> I mean, I don't think that because I also think that fam- what I love about you know, the kind of workplace drama in general. But what this show, I think, illustrates so beautifully is how much your workplace becomes another 
iteration of family and the concept mm-hmm. of family and community. And mm-hmm. I think they are fulfilling those roles and existing and kind of servicing those roles in their own context. I mean, I think mm-hmm. this episode also beautifully illustrates the family unit formed around Tracy and Gordo's absence that Danielle and Ed kind mm-hmm. of circle around young Danny Stevens and become these surrogate parents when in the, in the loss and absence of his own parents. And I think the workplace environment has become the spoke around which these things formed for a literal kind of orphan in that context. And so I think they're all doing it in their own way and in the context of work. And I think that's just as valid. Mm -hmm. Meryl, what are your thoughts about the evolution of Karen? Because I look at all of the characters in our story and I think that they all grow and change and shift, but arguably she's made the biggest change from a woman who never worked to now being the head of a billion-dollar corporation. Insane. Yeah, I mean, Karen was probably one of the more difficult characters to figure out where we were going to take her because, Mm -hmm. you know, she was definitely the woman behind the man. You know, she was a very strong presence with Ed in their relationship, but we talked a lot about... How does Karen feel when she sees Tracy, for instance, becoming an astronaut? Does she feel like, I want to do that too? Or what's in my path? And was it okay for her to say, actually, I'm very happy. Like being a a stay-at-home mom is a huge job. And, you know, obviously with the loss of Shane, that, that rocked her world too. And I think kind of set her up on this new trajectory where we talked about last season that she had this new view on life, that she used to be a planner. And then all of a sudden she was like, I'm not going to plan anything anymore. I'm just going to do in the Mm -hmm. moment what feels good. And that's why she sleeps with Danny, whether you like that decision or not. Um, It was very polarizing. But she just was like, I just want to feel good in the moment. And I'm going to make decisions based on that. Meryl's talking about the affair, the one night stand that Karen has with Danny Stevens and that it was um, met with mixed reviews. Lots of response from the audience about that. (laughs) Mira, as a lover of the show, as a director on the show, why do you think it was so polarizing, that storyline? You know, part of it, I think, actually is a bit gendered, right? Because of... I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because of um, the fact that she's the older woman and he's the young young Mm -hmm. boy, right? I I wonder. I can't help but wonder if (laughs) it's... the genders were reversed if it would be as polarizing. Because we also see Gordo, who is this philanderer, and he's got the hussy flush in the toilet while he's on the line with his wife. I mean, we're seeing throughout not just our story, but stories all over of men have extramarital affairs, have affairs with their friends' children, right? So it's not the most unusual story to ever be told, but I do think it's really remarkable, the response in this instance, because— this was an older woman and a young man, you know? Yeah. I got a lot of hate texts um, after that episode sure. from friends and family <laughs> who were like, I cannot believe <laughs> you guys did that. But some of it, I think, is an ick factor for people in terms of he was so close to Shane. And, mm, you know, mm. were they, is it kind of like she's sleeping with her son, which obviously it was not the intention, but, um, and is she chasing this kind of feeling she had of, her son being lost and she's chasing that. I mean, I think there's so much, but I think you're right. There's also the older woman, younger man part of it wrapped up in there. So then let's talk about Kelly Baldwin. Um, Something I really loved about Cynthia's performance in the scene where she comes and um, doesn't just ask, she basically demands to get to go up on my mission instead of going up with the Helios mission. 
Talk to me more about why that's so important for Kelly to go with NASA rather than go with Helios. I love that move. And I think to me, actually, that scene from Danielle's perspective, Kelly coming in and asking for that job and asking to be put on and telling me why if I was Danielle, to me, gets her the job right there. It's like, okay, she has the balls to kind of come on and just say, here's why I should be on. And I love the fact that she wants to get out of her father's shadow because it's like, I don't think there's going to be anyone on the Helios mission who isn't thinking, oh, nepotism, this girl is here just because of her dad. And that's a hard thing. It's a privilege, but it's also a hard thing to be operating in that way. And I think she mm-hmm. knows if she goes, and I think she really respects Danielle, but I think she also knows that if she fights for a spot and she gets one on the Sojourner One crew, that she's earned it as opposed Mm -hmm. to having her dad give it to her. And and I love that scene, actually, in the outpost when she tells her parents and and Ed's so proud of her and and still is like, hey, we're going to kick your ass. There's still a little (laughs) kind of like friendly competition. But, you know, I love the character of Kelly. I think she knows what she wants and she's going after it. And I just think that scene between her and Danielle is so great. And I love Danielle's like, pretty much tell me why you think you deserve it. Let's Mm -hmm. hear it. I think it says a lot about Kelly. Mira, having been sort of steeped in the genesis of this show in the first three episodes, what surprised you? What shocked you? What threw you that you didn't see coming? I mean, that Danny got married, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that, that from the first episode, like that set piece, I was like, okay, so he, he's moved on. But of course, we see that he hasn't really moved mm-hmm. on. The insertion of private industry as like the mm. major engine that's going to be like challenging NASA and challenging everyone within NASA for the season to me is just so brilliant. I mean, it wasn't necessarily surprising that it's so brilliant. I just love it. You know, I just think that that's the questions that it's posing, just the thought experiment that the show puts forward from the initial concept, initial premise from season one, and then everything that's unfolded since then. That's the pleasure in watching the show is the thought experiment. And I think that season three is really paying that off in in a completely new, unexpected, but almost Mm -hmm. like inevitable way. Mm Mm-hmm. In my conversation in episode one of the pod, I talked to Ron and we talked about the choice to cast the sort of Svengali billionaire as not the Elon Musk looking, Mark Zuckerberg looking kind of person, but instead having a young, handsome black man be the story's billionaire. Meryl, from a casting perspective, did you see this definitely needs to be a person of color or did you just truly open it up to all folks and then Eddie rose to the top? Yeah, it was an open casting, but um, this part was really hard to cast, like really hard to cast. Because, like days before we started is when he oh finally my God. started. Yeah. It was so hard because, as I'm sure Ron mentioned, we went through so many iterations of who is this character. Yeah, is it Elon Musk? Is it Steve Jobs? Is it Mark Zuckerberg? You know, And it didn't seem like it was any one person, but just little bits of each. And you know, it was just hard to find a person that you felt like was not kind of stuck strictly in the corporate world, but with someone mm-hmm. who could rally people around him that was the kind of mm-hmm. guy who had his own space and people really believed his vision. And he was kind of like a commune leader almost. Like, mm-hmm. my vision mm-hmm. is so amazing. I'm going to take you all and part of it and everyone's going to weigh in. And what do you guys think? And kind of like when we saw in the last episode where, you know, they take a vote basically on Ed and whether or not he's going to be the commander. And 
I think Eddie just kind of popped off the screen. Like, I'll be honest, I had never seen Eddie in anything before. I didn't even know who he was. And we saw a clip of him in another show. And I was like, okay, I can see this guy, you know, really commanding the troops, like rallying behind him. And I think Eddie's done such a great job. He's so cool. You just want to hang out with him. But he has a vision. (laughs) But is he crazy? Like, You know, there's kind of like... Okay, what's going on behind there? And I just think he's done a great job. And I I love this character of Dev. I just think it's just really exciting and adds this unknown element into this race. As our time on the pod is drawn to a close, (laughs) Mira, I want to ask you, what were some of the highlights and what were the lowlights? Um, no lowlights, all highlights. Just because <laughs> Meryl's on the call doesn't mean you can't yeah, say I, some lowlights. I can, I can take it, Mira. I can take it. But I, of course, it's a perfect show, so. <laughs> I do think when you're part of something from the first season, the beginning of something, you, you feel like such... But I also think it's the, it's the environment that's set on the show by Matt and Ben, by Meryl, by, you know, like by the cast, by all the department. Like there was just a, an energy on this show that um, that I really value that felt like truly collaborative and fun, even though, you know, we were dealing with some, I mean, you know, in season one doing the, that episode rupture was like mm-hmm. probably the heaviest kind of subject matter and, and just storyline and scene work that I've ever had to engage with. But, you know, like there was just a, a lightness and a true camaraderie on mm-hmm. set that made it feel really special. And Meryl, since you know all the things that happen after episode three, without giving away any spoilers, what can the audience look forward to heading into the next portion of season three? Episode three is such a tipping point for the rest of the season. I mean, as we see at the end, I love this two-year jump, you know, where the three ships are launching the Russian ship, Helios, Mm -hmm. NASA. And it's just like the tipping point. I mean, if you think that the first three episodes were exciting, you know, wait till we get to Mars. It's just, you know, the whole <laughs> the whole rest of the season is just, there's not a lot of time to take a breath. And I think for Danielle and Ed and Karen and Margo and Alita, I mean, everyone, it's just this season, it's just like we've put our foot on the gas pedal and we don't take it off. So I'm super excited for everyone to see it. It's once again, once you get in the third season, you think, ah, oh, you know, sophomore season was great, but how's the junior season going to be? And um, I I think we've killed it. I know I'm biased, but I I think this is one of our, probably our best season yet. I think so too. Mira Menon, Meryl Davis, thank you both so much for joining me on the pod today. Say goodbye, guys. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on this episode of For All Mankind, the official podcast. Be sure to listen and follow on Apple Podcasts and watch For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus where available. And don't forget to tune in next week where we'll discuss episode four. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by Atwell Media. Executive produced by Will Malnati and me, Chris Marshall. Produced by Elliot Davis, Drew Beebe, Naila Andre, and Jenny Barish. Sound editing and mixing by Andrew Holzberger. Until next time, I'm Chris Marshall, safe and sound Earthside.